So, read, read with me, if you will, uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 25. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to or from Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word here this morning. And God, we pray for your clarity. And Lord, we pray for your direction and your, um, Lord, just your spirit to open up understanding. And God, direction in our own lives. As you are sending, as you are sending in our passage here, Saul and Barnabas off to do the work uh, that you have uh, purposed for them, Lord. I just pray that this morning you would give us clarity in how you are desiring to lead us and to guide us in our own lives and, and purposes that you've given each one of us here in the church today. Equip us, Lord Jesus, for the work that you are giving us in this life. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Uh, so do you guys ever feel like um, you're, you're learning a new skill or you're learning to go a certain direction? So like, a, like before um, we went backpacking at the, at the end of July, uh, I actually, we got to meet with, with Kaylee and Brennan here a couple of times at the church. And we literally, we, we kind of moved the chairs out of the way and we took our backpacks and we threw our, we take, took all the stuff that we have for backpacking and just laid it out everywhere. <laughs> just laid it all over the tables and had different things all over the tables and you know had our our tent and then I had our food and I had our cooking and I had our coffee and then had our insect <laughs> repellent or 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 what we're going to use to try to keep the mosquitoes off and we we're just sitting around and we we're going through every single object why we'd need it why we wouldn't need it if you want it if you don't want it do you want the weight is it worth the weight because it's, it's, it's always the, you know, you can go all the way from like, you know, 20 pounds like Mackenzie, <laughs> all the way to like 50 pounds like some, like someone else. And, uh, so like, depending on what you pack, is it, you know, asking the question, is it worth the weight? Not like the W-A-I-T, but the W-E-I-G-H-T. You know, worth the, 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 you know, the weight on your shoulders, on your, on your hips. You know, is it worth, um, bringing with you? Will you use it? Uh, and then also, how do you use it? What is it for? What might you need that you don't yet have? Or you have something that's way too heavy, you know, and, you're, and it's going to kill you. And, it, and we just had these couple of times waiting and, and preparing and talking and, and just hanging out. And then we came to the backpacking trip. And, you know, talking talk to them, you know, even, even afterwards, they said it was so great that we got together for, with them for those couple times because they felt so equipped. They felt ready. And they used every single item that we told them to get. And so they said, if we didn't have that thing, oh my gosh, we would be so up a creek without a paddle. And we didn't bring paddles because that's a terrible idea for a backpacking trip. But, <laughs> but they felt equipped. And we walked with them, we laid it all out, and we walked through and we talked through every single item that went 
through and into their backpack that they later used. And we showed them on the backpacking trip how to use it. And very much like these things, this is like our faith. We, in our faith, we have different elements of faith, of belief, of, of faithfulness, of hope, of peace. How we get to a relationship with God. How do I study the Bible? How do I understand the scripture? How do I understand how to apply it to my life? How do I live the gospel each day? How do I love one another? Like I said, we were talking about this this morning, right? Loving over the hundred times in just the New Testament, it says the words one another. Well, how do I forgive one another? How do I rebuke my brother or sister without them feeling completely overwhelmed? How do I love them and support them and encourage them and lift them up? How do I, how, you know, how do we do these things so that I can speak into? What is God gifting me? What is my purpose in the church? What is my position? What is my place? How do I love and serve the body? How do I love and serve people in the city and, and share the gospel with them? What is the gospel? What is the story of the Bible? Like all these things, right? So that when we get onto the trail, onto life, we know how to apply them. And so that gets us to our point this morning. That is the local church is a training center to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to engage the life and purpose God has given us. And that's what we see here in our passage here this morning. Is that we we see that both it is both a you know during a worship service they are laying hands on them and recognizing the purpose of God on their lives, and they're equipping them they're sending them out on mission. And so the the first and foremost the local church isn't simply a place to worship the Lord yet it is a place to worship the Lord. It is a place to read Scripture because we have the Scripture they didn't have the Scripture back then. It's a place for us to read the Scripture together, to pray together to spend time with one another. As we spend time with one another, we know and believe that we are spending time in God's presence because God is with us. And so the local church is a training center to equip us, the saints, for the work of ministry to engage. Here's the thing. The the work of ministry is to engage the life and purpose that God has given us. So let's look at our passage because we've got a lot going on in this passage and I want to make sure that we get through it here. So here we come back to Barnabas and Saul. Now, some scholars have actually mentioned that chapter 12, talking all about like Peter and, and Herod and how Herod broke out against the church and killed James and imprisoned Peter and Peter was miraculously delivered and then Herod was killed, you know, was, you know, killed, was, you know died. That this is like a parenthesis. It's like a little break at the end, uh, you know, that we see at the end of 11 where it talks about uh, Saul and Barnabas for, for a while. He said, um, about the famine relief, right? And so they're on their way to Jerusalem, and it's almost like while they're on their way, because it's 250 miles away, while they're on their way, this is happening. <laughs> and, uh, and so they come to Jerusalem to deliver the relief funds that they talk about at the end of chapter 11 through the prophetic word of the famine in Ant- you know, that they had in Antioch. But here's the thing. Like they, there's actually a, a much longer reference to this stop in Jerusalem, to this big trip that they take from Antioch down to Jerusalem. It's found in uh, Galatians chapter 2, where he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation, that would be the famine, right? Revelation about the famine, the prophetic word and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running 
and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, what they were once makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for the an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, who's, who's, who those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked, they asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Now, a little point of clarification, that James is Jesus' brother, because we know that the other James is dead. So, so these are the three pillars of the church. And so let's go back to Barnabas and Saul here. So what's going on? They have come to Jerusalem to deliver the relief funds and the prophetic word of the famine from Antioch. Because there's a love for the church in Jerusalem. There's a desire for unity with the church in Antioch, with the church in Jerusalem. So the whole point of the journey was unity, was bringing them together and showing, hey, we've raised all this money for you. Because the prophetic word that in all of Judea, there will be a massive famine. So we wanted to make sure that you guys were provided, provided for. They came to give the report about what God had been doing in Antioch, because it's not quite just a stroll down the side, you know, down the road, 250 miles. It's, it's a journey for them on foot. Right? And so that, that's 250 miles, which is 250, you know, and I found this out. So a mile, do you know the mile is the length that a Roman battalion can march in an hour? So that's literally one mile per hour. One, you know, every hour, this is how long, how far the Roman battalion can, can march. So this is 250 hours of walking. While they're there, they meet Peter, James, Jesus' brother, and John, the three pillars of the church, like I said. They bring along an uncircumcised Gentile convert, Titus. Yes, the Titus that this is the, the, the Titus that Paul, I'm sorry, the, the Paul will later train for ministry in Ephesus and send out as an elder to plant a church in Cyprus. And then also this is the same Titus that we have a letter that Paul wrote too. So it's a letter by Paul to Titus, this Titus. Um, so Jews, most likely Pharisees of the what the Bible says, the circumcision party, were are are known as false brothers. And even even the context of that word is false brothers with false motives. And so they come in to disrupt the church. They slip in, in a sense, to put the Gentile brothers and sisters, our Gentile brothers and sisters, under the Mosaic law, which they had been freed from, and make Titus. They, 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 they rally the church up in a, in a little tizzy, 
you know, against this whole Titus issue. To where it becomes a, a point on their, on their next church business meeting. However, Saul has been preaching and practicing the gospel of grace and the kingdom of God for at least 10 years at this point. And this dude ain't fooled. He's like, no, no, you take that garbage somewhere else. He's like, we weren't fooled for even a moment. And that's the thing. When you live the gospel, when you are equipped with the gospel of grace, when it becomes a part of your personal ethos and the church ethos, anything weird, anything that causes a red flag will will immediately come to your mind. Because remember, how do secret service officers in America, you know, secret service officers were originally created for counterfeit. They weren't created to protect the president in the beginning. They were created to track down frauds and counterfeit money. That's their primary assignment. And then on, on top of that, then they go and protect big, big wig figures. But do you know how they can learn if a dollar bill is a counterfeit? You know how they do that? They, you know, it's, it's easy to take, you know, counterfeit and like, you know, study the counterfeit. Oh, this doesn't look quite right. What are they? They don't study counterfeit. They study the real thing. They know this bill inside and outside, what the smell, the, the feel, the, the weight, how it moves, how it bends, how it, how it you know, the smell, like I said, the, the different prints and the, and the, the facial recognition and the, and the little, little doohickeys there, little security issue, you know, security things and the images on the back and the front. They know it so well that as soon as they pick it up, they know in an instant if it's the real thing or if it's a fraud. It's a fraud. And that's what our faith is, is meant to be. Our faith is meant to be something that we know and recognize. We can, we can spot a fake from a mile off because we have been practicing it and preaching it and living it every day for years, training ourselves in it daily, reading the scripture so that we're studying the real thing so if someone comes in here, starts to say, oh, you can add like crystals to your faith. Oh, you can add like yoga and you know, worship of, of you know, the yogi and, and, the, and Hinduism to your faith. Oh, you can add this, this meditation that the Buddhists practice to your faith. You can add this or add that. You know that it's a fake. You know that it is the theology and the doctrine of demons and is leading you away from the truth. And that's what we have here. They knew it in an instant. They would not allow these people to speak in their congregation because it was garbage. They make an agreement that Saul will minister to the Gentiles and Peter will minister to the Jews. They recognize God's call on Paul's life because of the gospel that he's been given by Jesus himself. Peter asks Saul to remember the chronically poor Jerusalem church, like you said in, in the end of this. That's what he says. You know, and at the end of this passage, we see that he says that you know, they only asked that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. And the poor that he's, that he's referring to in this context right here in the book of Galatians is the poor, the chronically poor in Jerusalem. Because they were so ostracized in their culture, they were, you know, they were cut off from the Jewish nation. You know, kind of like in, this, in a sense, like the Christians were, the true Christians were during Nazism in the, th- in the 1930s. 
because they became so overwhelmingly socialist that if you were not recognized and given you know, um, the position of citizen in Nazi Germany, you had nothing. You could take your, you, you know, as, as Americans, we would, you know, back in the Wild West, the word that we would refer to it is outlaw. You were taking you know, all of your rights and all of your privileges, all of the, the government assistance that you, that all the regular citizens would have was taken from you. That's what, it's, that's what the, the word outlaw meant. It wasn't that, you know, necessarily that just the law enforcement were looking for you, is that you were, your name, your identity was now outlaw. And anyone who came into contact with you knew that you were an outlaw. They could do whatever they wanted to you because you weren't protected by the laws. They could torture you, murder you, maim you, blind you, do whatever the heck they wanted to you, and there was nothing that you could do about it because you are now no longer protected by the law. And that's what the Jerusalem church was like. The Jerusalem church, Christians, were now outside of the protections and benefits of being a Jewish citizen, being an an Israeli citizen. They didn't have these things, so they were chronically poor, ostracized and left out. Could be why a lot of them also went, not just because of the persecution and went to other places, that they went to these other places so they could actually live and just gain, gain some sort of, of grounding underneath them economically. But this becomes a focus for Saul among the Gentile churches, this raising up money. It's interesting that most New Testament passages about money, about giving offerings and tithes, are based around Paul's collection of an offering for the Jerusalem church. He doesn't say, necessarily talk about giving and tithing within the church for the for the for the sustaining of the church itself financially, his his verses, his, whatever he writes, he's talking about the mentality of raising money as an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Because he, this is actually the context of Second Corinthians chapter nine verse seven, the the famous one: God loves a cheerful giver, right? God loves a cheerful giver. Well, the, the context of that is that the church has actually rejected Paul in first, after first, they received the first Corinthians letter. Then he writes a scathing letter to them because they've rejected him and raised up this other guy in his place that's not Paul and preaches something other than Paul. And then he writes a scathing letter to them and they repent and they put the guy into his place and then they turn and, and say, Paul, we've repented. And he writes a letter of encouragement to them. He says, all right, I know you guys took a break with uh, collecting that offering for a while, but I need you get, to get back to that. And don't do it out of, out of compulsion, but do what, you've, what, did, what you said you were going to do. Like, you know, the commitment that you made financially to the Jerusalem church, fulfill it. And do it gladly, because God loves a cheerful giver. So that's the context of even our giving offerings and tithes. It comes from this, this, this uh, mentality, this ministry of Paul to support the Jerusalem church. <clears throat> and again... He's doing this ministry all around these new churches that he's going to plant eventually as an act of unity with the church in Jerusalem where their faith started. Where their faith, the faith that they're enjoying like over in Ephesus is only because of the, the Jerusalem church. And so he's saying, hey, you guys need to, what, you, what you, we gave you spiritually, you need to give back now financially to this, to this same church. So, this meeting in Jerusalem is not only to give 
a, a report to, on the Antioch church, but also for giving the offering that they had collected, this first of, of many offerings that, that Saul will, will raise. But it's also a part of God's work in Saul's life. It's also a part of this, this work that God is doing to lead him to the fullness of the purposes God has for his life through the affirmation of the disciples in Jerusalem. By this, 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 uh, this uh, recognition, even by Peter himself, that Paul's or that Saul's purpose in life, that Saul's calling in ministry is to the Gentiles. He's been wrestling with this for over 14 years at this point. What is his calling? How does he make it manifest? Saul is sent to the to the Gentiles. This is his calling from the beginning. And it's referred to back here in verse 2 again, where it says, As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so, what does this look like for them? Now, for them, you know, they think that it's Antioch. This is, this is where they're at. They're in Antioch. And so, why is this part of God's call in his life? How is this... Part of the, of the equipping of Saul for this work that God has set him on. So Antioch, let's talk about Antioch. Now we talked about Antioch before, but I want to go back over again a little bit. So it's a, it's a metropolis of over half a million people. So about 500,000 people is a very multicultural, very diverse place. Um, and it's separated like a lot of places in two quarters, into little pockets of people of like language and like culture, ethnicity, living together. Uh, you know, we can see this in America where you can see these areas that are called white flights. I mean, you can't really see them over here, but like down in Texas, oh my gosh, they're obvious. Like you have little cities and towns that were built because of the white people were getting out of the urban centers where the minorities started to move in. You see black and black area and his and Hispanic areas, and then you see the town like Waco, the the African Americans and, and the Hispanics started to move in. Hispanics up into the Belmead area and the and sent downtown Waco. You saw the African Americans moving into, and they literally moved south and created Woodway and Hewitt and with well, the other I can't remember the other one, but <laughs> the, doesn't matter. But these other two little towns, the suburbs, suburbs are a product of the white flight. Of, of white people leaving because they're like culture. And then like we see these cultures moving into this downtown areas and establishing their culture, establishing their just a neighborhood that lived the way that they wanted to live. And so there we just started to see these separations. It's been a thing for thousands of years. Same thing in Antioch. They were divided. It was the, you know, the, the, the Carthage uh, flight and the, and the Spanish flight and the, the Jewish flight and going and, and, and res, you know, residing in little pockets all over the city. And that's what that little pic, that picture is on the bottom of your paper there is that is a picture of an artist rendition of Antioch. It was about four miles wide and about two thirds of that, you know, north and south, but butted up right against the mountains. And so the, the Jewish quarter was about 25,000 people. Now think about this. So how did the, how did these Jewish believers start to get there? So first, Jewish believers dispersed to Antioch after they came back from Shavuot, from Pentecost. 
Right? They all came from, they came from all over the world and they came to Jerusalem for Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell on them and, and like 3,000 and then 5,000 came to faith. So almost 10,000 people came to faith in Jesus in less than a week. And so then after the festival, boom, they were dispersed all throughout, all back to their cities. That's how the church in Rome was started. That's how the church in Ephesus was started. That's how the church in Antioch was started. Of these Jewish believers coming back and putting their, after, after having put their faith in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. So, and then many more came after Stephen's martyrdom in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. This, so far, the Jerusalem church is Jewish believers. They're, they don't speak to anyone but Jews. The, the churches are, are spread from home to home in the Jewish quarter. It's a Jewish faith. They observed Shabbat, they, you know, Passover and Sukkot. They didn't eat pork. They married their children to other Jews. They circumcised their baby boys on the eighth day. They attended synagogue every Shabbat. They believed every Gentile needed to be circumcised when they came into faith. And they would not allow Gentiles into their home or synagogue until they did so. Snippy, snippy. These Jewish believers were still really ethnocentric. Then we see later on that we, that we read about back in, uh, back in uh, chapter, chapter 11, I believe it was. Then a group came from Cyprus, Cyprus and Cyrene to Antioch to share the gospel and plant churches among the other 425,000 425, Gentiles. But here's the thing. They're amongst a dramatically pagan, lost and wicked culture. One of the, the two things we see is a temple to Apollo in a place called the Paradise of Daphne. This is Apollo. Apollo was the Olympian god of destruction, a.k.a. Apollyon in, Revel, in the book of Revelation, which is ironic because he is the god of prophecy and oracles and music and song and poetry, archery, healing, plague and disease, and the protection of the young. He was depicted, speaking of young, as a handsome, beardless youth with long hair and attributes such as a wreath and branch of laurel, bow and quiver of arrows, a raven and a lyre. Cultural festivals and holidays in this city were based around Apollo and Daphne. And the interesting story about about why these two are are set together is that Apollo was struck by an arrow by Cupid and fell in love with a mortal woman named Daphne. And Daphne was, was struck with an arrow from other, another god somewhere. I can't remember which one it was. But basically, in order that she would flee from his advances. So he was like dramatically in love with her, and she was running away. And so he eventually caught up to her, and then she cried out to Gaia, the earth spirit, and said, help me! And she transformed her into a laurel tree. And so that's why he fell in love with the, with the laurel tree. And then he also then took branches of laurel and put it around his head as a wreath. And this is where they got the giving of a laurel wreath in the Athenian Olympian Games. This is where that wreath comes from. This is from his love of Daphne. And so we have a temple to Apollo and we have a temple which is a.k.a. a paradise of Daphne and lots of really distorted, disgusting ways of worship, but they do it every month. Uh, every seventh day of the month, 
is Apollo's day. And every one, and the big festivals, it always happened on, a, on the number seven. It was his number. And so we have all these cultural festivals and holidays that set the landscape of the everyday Gentile's life. It, was just, it would set the tone for their dinner parties. You know, when they went to go visit family, they would go and, and these kinds of things defined their seasons. You think about our own culture, right? We have, what, Labor Day coming up next week. Next, next week. We have Halloween, then Thanksgiving, then Christmas, then New Year's, then Valentine's Day, then St. Patrick's Day, then Easter, then Memorial Day, then Gay Day or Holiday Month, <laughs> and then Fourth of July, and then back to school. Right? We we govern our lives by seasons, by holidays, and they had them too. They were just pagan which many of ours are too. But that's another story. Another conversation. But this is the culture that our brothers and sisters in Christ were being saved out of. This, this, this culture that's ruled and reigned by a rotation and a, and a repetition and a routine of pagan holidays that governed their very lives, their childhoods, their memories, their friendships and their family gatherings. But now let's look and see how the church is developing. So they go back to Antioch, to back to the church. Now there's not one like church building in Antioch. It wasn't like, this is the church of Antioch or Antioch church, you know, with a parking lot and a cross on the building and lights and shrubs and, right? They were meeting house to house across the city. Now, occasionally they might meet in, together in a, in a large area, maybe like the city square, together as a group, or they would, you know, in someone's big, bigger house that they could all fit in the living room. Because at this point, the Antioch church was probably maybe at the most, maybe a couple hundred, at the most. The churches back then were not huge. They didn't become bigger until, until years later. Now, because each, here's the thing, like, especially in the Jewish culture, you kind of knew what to expect. Jewish faith with the, with the Jewish Messiah. But in this, these other churches, because remember, they were all in different quarters of different languages and cultures and ethnicities. Each of these home churches throughout all these different quarters of Antioch had a unique flavor. They were all unique. They had different kind of people that were hearing the gospel from a different perspective, from a different background. Each church had a unique worship and expression. And here's the coolest part. So Saul got to be a part of this. Paul got the opportunity to learn how to do cross-cultural ministry and minister to a vast number of different cultures. In the very city where he lived, and did ministry for several years. We're talking at least five years, if not more. These years, I believe, were God equipping Saul to be sent out as Paul in order to fulfill his ministry of planting churches across cultures, across demographics, across languages, across the known world. And across, of course, the different kinds of pagan landscapes all, all over. But he knew how to present the gospel to each place and how to adapt because of where he grew up doing ministry, where he grew the most in his faith. 
And so we see this imagery of them of worshiping and fasting together. It says right there in, in verse in verse two, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Well, the word is also are ministering to the Lord. So who who is worshiping here? So we see what they, he says that there are prophets and teachers. So already we see roles and offices in the church uh, church ministry. So let's look at a few of these guys. So Simeon, who is called Niger or Niger, as it's pronounced in the in the Latin, simply means dark skinned or complexion. That's probably where we get the word today. That's been made into a slanderous word, right? Known to have been from Cyrene, according to tradition, and so in, according to the the church tradition, that this is the man that carried Jesus's cross. Simeon from Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene, and also Lucius, also from Cyrene. With, with Simeon. Then Cyrene is North Africa area. So these guys were, were darker complected. And then you see this guy, Menaean, a close friend of, as it says, a close friend of, of, of Herod the Tetrarch. Now this is the guy that like killed um, John the Baptist. This is the guy um, who Jesus was brought before. Uh, this was the Herod that just died. It was his dad. And so what it, what it means by a, a, uh, a, a close friend is kind of this, grew up together, adopted, possibly part of the family or simply as a part of the same tutoring. So they were very close uh, growing up as children. Um, and so it's interesting that they, that they include that, that fact. There's probably a lot more to that, but our sermon was already pretty long. So I'm going to skip on. <laughs> so these are key, you know, the key leaders um, are the ones that were the ones at the beginning. Of our, of our time of understanding the, the ministry that's now breaching to the Gentiles, breaching the cultural gap from Jewish to Gentile. So these are the key leaders gathering in this room together, prophets and teachers. Uh, and then we see, again, another one, another prominent figure of Barnabas, who's from Jerusalem. And after they started planting churches and, you know, the gospel started to be responded to by the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit was being poured out on the Greeks and the Gentiles in Antioch, Barnabas went to go check it out and be a part of it. And he was like, yes, this is awesome. I need to get my buddy Saul. He would do great here. And I know God has called him to minister to the Gentiles. So I'm going to go get him. And he brings him over to Antioch. So they think, man, this is, God is, you know, Saul is fulfilling his ministry. Saul is engaging in where God is calling, has called him to, to be a minister to the Gentiles. Saul, a Pharisee, turned faithful follower of Jesus. And here's where we get that call. Look, look back in Acts chapter 9. Called by Jesus, he is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Maybe this is why it took him so long to go. But it says, as they were worshiping, so worship is a part of God's equipping. As we worship, God is speaking. As we worship, God is moving. As we worship, God is pointing out things in his word, stirring up the desires. What do you say? That he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, where, does, where did those desires come from? They come from the calling of the Holy Spirit in your life that's placing these desires in your heart for you to fulfill your purpose. He's giving you desires for your purpose. 
so that you will fulfill his purposes. And we see this as they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that word. The word is liturgeo, which is where we get the word nowadays. Nowadays it's called liturgy. Anyone ever heard that word liturgy? Liturgy is the word that a lot of the kind of more mainline Protestant churches use as basically an order of service. And they have a liturgy that that is kind of on a four-year cycle. Um, and so, the, or like it's it's also their 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 Sunday liturgy. It's like this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, right? So kind of like for us, it's like our we gather together. I'm ten minutes late starting, and <laughs> then we welcome everyone, and then we sing some song, or you pray, and then we sing some songs, and then I preach, and then we go to our tables for communion, and then I have a discussion. That would be like our liturgy. It's our order. It's how we typically kind of do things here at the here at Shift. And so, but the word simply actually means to serve the state at one's own cost or to perform a religious service. And this is used of the priests and the Levites when they're worshiping and serving and ministering in the temple. <clears throat> so this is worship to or for and with, through or in the Lord. And so we see this expressed in fasting and prayer. They're fasting and praying together. Now, they're in Antioch, so this is not talking about them like going to the temple and doing worship in the temple. This is them taking the worship now in a new covenant that doesn't take sacrifice. Like that's what they would do in the temples, and the, even the pagan temples or the temple in Jerusalem, they, they would come and offer a sacrifice. Well, the church worships the one who was sacrificed for them. So they don't bring a sacrifice. They bring, they bring themselves, they bring their hearts, they bring their spirits to come be with them. And like the Bible says, you know, we are living stones being built up into a holy house in which to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, what are those spiritual sacrifices? You. Us. We are living sacrifices that we are giving our very lives to him. We are laying down our lives, laying down our wills, and our futures, and our jobs, and our families, and our, our our whole lives before the Lord, and saying, "You take them, you guide them. You have my time, you have my energy, you have my resources, you have my life. What do you want me to do with it?" This is what Paul was. This is what Saul was doing from the very beginning. He was just offering himself as a living sacrifice, and that's what we do on a Sunday morning. We come and offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. Now we could do more of this. We could do, do this better and more effectively. And that's part of, going to be part of our discussion today is how can we do this more? How can we minister together? Because worship leads to ministering one to another. And as we minister one to another, God works through us to equip us to do more and effective ministry. How can you pray for one another? How can you speak prophetic words over one another? How can you pray healing on one another? How can you encourage one another? How can you help one another trans, you know, one another's lives to be transformed as we gather? So what does worship and equipping look like in the early church? <clears throat> well, let's go to the, the passage that we always use. Ephesians chapter 4. 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Save that, mark it, highlight it. That is a key phrase, a key passage for us as a church. Because remember, the church is a training center to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? Look at the first point there. That's what the church is for. So this is how, this is why we're supposed to do this. This is how we do this. Is be, we are given different roles, different offices. Equipping and sending. So the offices or roles of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherds, and teachers are gifts. Now they're not just like spiritual gifts. Like they like if you're a prophet, you're a gift from God to me. If you're an evangelist, you're a gift of God to me, like to, to us as a church. If God has given you the spiritual gift, if God has called you to be a an apostle or a teacher, or a pastor, shepherd, you are a gift from God to the church. God is a a gift of God. To what? Build up the body of Christ. Now, Peter Wagner says that he calls these governmental offices, that the church works and the church structure is guided by and, and, and founded by and founded upon these roles. These roles and positions that the church recognizes, affirms, and authorizes such people to live out these, this vocation. Because God has called them to it, the church gives them a place and an environment in which to live that out. That's what a vocation is. It's not a job title. It's not a job description. It is a gifting and, an, and a calling by God for use in the church to train people in their culture, to minister to people in their culture, to be a faithful, to be faithful to Christ and his culture, his kingdom, his ways. Because think about this. Ephesians, the passage we just talked about. Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians was written at the end of Paul's third missionary journey while under house arrest in Rome. This culture of God calling, gifting, and raising people up in the church to fulfill these offices or roles was one that Paul learned very early on in ministry as evidence, as we can see, that's still surviving in Ephesians chapter 4. But he's already living it out in Acts chapter 13. We're already seeing these roles and he's being trained, and this is how you do ministry. This is how you plant a church. So when he's going, he's not just like running and gunning and trying to figure it out as he goes. He's, rep- he's replicating and raising up what he's been taught. How he's been equipped. How God has 
continually over these last 10 years up to this point in his life and faith has cultivated this call in his life and has been training him and equipping him for that call into the future. Because this is 10 years, this has been 14 years since he became a Christian to now he's being sent, finally being sent and equipped because of all this 14 years of equipping in the gospel. All these years of equipping in what it means to be the church and how to practice being the church. So that he can go and plant churches and create a legacy in the church. And write books that we're now reading in the church. Because remember, that's the whole purpose of the local church. The local church is a training ground, training center to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to engage the life and purpose God has given us. So when we start treating the church that way, and less is a place that I need to go to get fed, and more of a I need to go and get equipped so that I can love and serve the church and bring more people into the church so that we can build God's kingdom, and I'm used, I'm my, this is my role, this is my ministry that God has given me and called me to, because that is a gift. When you get to that point where you're wrestling with God and, and figure that out, like ask God, just ask him, like, God, what is your purpose for me? And Lord, is there a place for me to practice that? And if there's not, come and talk to me. So we can cultivate a space for the working of ministry, for the working and the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. We don't want to be too rigid that we can't actually minister. Because we're not just, I mean, the church is not just singing songs and listening to me speak. The church is us ministering to one another. And so we need to remember that. And we need to create these spaces for us to minister one to another. It's also part of our, part and parcel of our act groups. This is where we can do more work of ministry one to another. And so if you're not a part of an act group, please consider becoming part of one. Shoot, plant one. You know, maybe start up, start up a, a, a meal fellowship group or something, I don't know, whatever it is. We need, maybe we need to start up more so that we have opportunities in which to live out the faith and the, the ministry that God has called us to. Because we're not just people that are coming to church to get fed, to get poured into, to grow in our knowledge of the Bible, to sing some songs and go home. Our identity as the church is to minister one to another. Our identity is, is Christ and his people. And so we need to figure out how to do that more effectively as we go forward. And we're, we're in relationships with different places and different churches that are, that are helping me as the, as the senior leader to figure out how do we create these spaces. Because I was born Southern Baptist. This whole spirit thing is new to me. You know? I, honestly, I think probably Cambridge with, you know, with, with your, <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with Mike and, and Betsy, you know, that was probably the first experience that I've had with Holy Spirit, you know, so it's about, been about seven years. I'm new, I'm a newbie and I've just, you know, so I'm now like learn, trying to learn how to lead in cr- creating spaces for the Holy Spirit to work. So, um, but we, that's also one thing that I'm not in this alone. So let's come together. Let's figure this out together. How can, we, how can we manifest the Holy Spirit together? How can we engage with the presence of Jesus here on a Sunday morning or in our act groups or one-on-one together so that we're a healthier 
stronger, more faithful church to God and to one another. Because the local church, Shift Church, is a training ground, is a training center to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we can all individually and collectively engage the life and purpose that God has given us. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your calling and for your presence. God, I pray that you would lead us. God, guide us by your Holy Spirit so that we can experience you on a Sunday morning and, and throughout our weeks, God. We want you. The more that we seek you, Lord, the more that we find you. And the more that we find you, Lord, we discover the more we love you. And so, God, help us to seek you. Help us to seek your heart so that we can love one another as we learn to love you more. God, train us, equip us, and give us, uh, train us and give us revelation and guidance on how we can minister to one another on a daily and weekly basis, Lord so that we can experience your presence every day in our lives and in our church. Bless us, God. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.